0: Welcome to Elevated Voices Podcast, where we value using our voice collectively to explore life challenges, including mental health, addiction, trauma, and ways to heal. With our voice, we empower, encourage, and transform lives. I'm your host, Daishika Bibbs, a certified trauma-focused therapist. Licensed Clinical Social Worker, and Licensed Certified Addiction Specialist. As you listen, ask questions, and enjoy the show, remember this podcast is not a substitute for a therapeutic relationship with a licensed mental health professional. As we embark on this journey together, let's elevate our voice to echo the sound for the voiceless. Today's guest is a hardworking man, who values healing. With his professional training, life experiences, and over 39 years of marriage, it is safe to say his knowledge prepared him for his role as a marriage and family therapist, clinical mental health counselor, a certified Christian sex therapist, and a national certified counselor. He is passionate about attachment theory, which focuses on how we as human beings bond with each other. His motto is working with couples to build mutual love, respect, and positive accountability. His specialties include, but are not limited to, marital, premarital, affair recovery, and trauma recovery. Elevated Voices Podcast would like to give a warm welcome to Bruce Wayne Knight. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Daishika, for inviting me to Elevated Voices podcast. It's a real pleasure.
0: No problem. Bruce, you have an immense amount of experiences across the board. What led up to you becoming a, a therapist?
1: That could be a, a long story, but I'll, I'll keep it short. Uh, I became a pastor, first of all, I, I felt called into the ministry moved to New York, uh, started a church there. And then um, my uh, sexually problematic behavior kind of got in the way. Uh, We had to leave the ministry in 1990. From 90 to 2008, there was a crazy Off and on kind of recovery journey. First of all, we couldn't get help. So that put us in desperate straits. We did thankfully find a congregation that practiced grace. They actually made this statement to us that we don't condone what you did, but we also don't condemn you. We will walk with you to get through this. And that really has been kind of an ongoing mantra for us. One of the reasons why we eventually named our Counseling Center, Grace Healing Journey, because we were shown grace. Years went on. uh, I count uh, 2008 as my time for uh, sobriety. My wife and I were talking about what kind of career I could get into because even at that point in time, years after 1990, didn't have any clarity on that. And she said, Well, why don't you go back to school and check in the counseling? I have a real passion for helping guys uh, recover from sexually addictive behaviors, as well as uh, we, uh, my wife and I've been married, as you mentioned, uh, almost 40 years, and we're passionate about being in relationship, healthy relationship with one another. And it, It's interesting. Uh, it's been my experience that whether uh, one is a part of a faith community or not, the problems that we have are pretty much the same. And so those two components, my my own sex addiction recovery journey, passion for relationships, and then having gone through that and eventually gotten help uh, has brought me to the place where I, I really see this more as a calling than a profession.
0: Right. And so for quite some time, there was no help out there yeah you know, and you and your family kind of sort of struggled, and I mean you and your wife at the time struggled with getting you the support and the help that you need. How did that weigh on your mental health
1: oh it was it was terrible. I went from being a pastor uh working with people, doing counseling to folding and and counting genes. My wife and I were separated for about uh a year, two daughters at that point in time I went back to my hometown to live with my parents again in my mid-30s. So there was a a huge sense of self-esteem that had eroded, almost erased, uh, no sense of direction. We had a difficult time actually finding uh, a counseling center. This was in 1990. There wasn't then the same resources that we uh, have available now. Uh, It was beginning through uh, Patrick Carnes. He's kind of I call him the guru of the sex addiction recovery movement. Uh, he and Mark Laser, and early on, uh, it wasn't until the late '80s, early '90s, that this response to a need that was repeatedly showing up in counseling offices was addressed.
0: What you said is very important because things have changed over the years. But one of the things that you mentioned was when you did find that help, the organization said that they would show you grace. They don't approve of what you're doing or how you're doing things, but they will show you grace in order for you to have a foundation to heal. And I think that's what it's all about is the healing process. And there are so many people out there who struggle with various issues, various addictions, but because of the stigma or the lack of resources, they don't have the opportunity to receive the help.
1: Absolutely. This was a, um, a church, actually, that helped us. And probably the most at that point in time, that was before we actually found formal counseling to, to help. That wasn't until that was in 1995, 96. Uh, we moved to North Carolina. We were living in Virginia then. But when we were associated with that church, uh, they actually practiced grace. They didn't condemn us. They came alongside us. Uh, There were people in a small group who kind of, they didn't quite understand the issues and how to address them. Uh, We actually did some church-related counseling at that point, and they were as helpful uh, as they could possibly be. It was really more of a support uh, system than it was professional counseling at that point. But one of the things that is a huge problem for the addict and the partner who's experiencing the personal trauma is the isolation. Uh, John Bowlby, uh, the author of uh, Attachment Theory, in one of his tenets of attachment says isolation inherently is traumatizing. It is. And uh, one of the things that uh, to this day, one of the things I really encourage the guys in my groups to do is to get connected with other guys outside of group because in those many moments, those little tiny moments when there's temptation, when you're struggling, if you don't have someone that you've already been in contact with with to reach out to, the isolation can take away the victory.
0: It can. And it's amazing because you have used Your struggle to not only give back, but to be that sounding support for individuals who struggle with sex addiction, who struggle with intimacy, who struggles with affair and recovery and being that, like you said, traumatizing component of an affair or being in a situation where there is a partner or a loved one that is struggling with sex addiction. And I think that's amazing because not only have you got the professional experience in the training, you have your personal experience in training. And I think that speaks volume.
1: It's it's invaluable. One of the things that has been a growing practice for me, uh, I, I work also with the partners of the addict. My my wife, early on in our journey, shared it this way. She said, it's like we, we were in this horrific accident out on the highway. The rescue squad came and they picked you up and took you. Uh, that's the counseling piece. Took you to get help. I was left out on the roadside uh, broken and bleeding because early on in the whole sex addiction and trauma recovery movement, the focus was primarily on the addict, right, and not so much on the partner and the partner has experienced uh, what I refer to as a little teen personal trauma It's not the same as military combat or a horrific storm, but the injury that comes from going out either outside the relationship or using pornography, something other than the partner is so hurtful. It, it, it creates a huge attachment wound for the partner. What's wrong with me? Why am I not enough? Right. What did I do? How come I didn't see this coming? And it just leaves them kind of like my wife described out on the highway, broken and alone.
0: Right. And I think that analogy that your wife used is an amazing analogy, because when you think of an addiction, is not just the person who is struggling with the addiction problem. And addiction is a family problem. And so, like your wife said, you know, not having that support is critical. And I also think that when you bring the family in and when you not only support the person who is struggling with the addiction, and you also work alongside the family, I think the recovery of the journey has a more effective component to it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. uh, I'm developing a model called, which I call the tapestry model. That includes a comprehensive approach to sex addiction and trauma recovery, where the addict has an individual counselor that's working with him, or her. Uh, I do have some female sex addicts as well, not as many, but uh, then we also have a, an individual counselor that's working with a partner in her uh, emotional uh, trauma. The important thing for the spouses and the partners are establishing healthy boundaries where they get their needs met as well as the addict having uh, a program to to help them. And then as they're both individually healing we add the component of bringing in uh, what we call conjoint couples check-in to where we kind of see how the couples are doing in their dynamics, and then gradually it moves from working with the individual to working with the couple. And then if there are family members, children who may be impacted, depending on their developmental appropriateness, of course.
0: I like that intricate model. Not only will that gives the individual... Time to face shame and guilt, but again, allowing the spouse or the significant other, you know, process some of the questions again, like they may have, which is, you know, why am I not enough? Why is this happening to us? And then being able to bring them both together to focus on how do we move forward from here and making sure our relationship is stronger than before. I think that that is very critical because it can also debunk some of the myths that are out there when it comes to sex addiction and an affair. Well,
1: uh, as far as the sex addiction side of things, uh, I think a a brief story will will kind of set the tone. Before I became a, a professional therapist, Uh, As a volunteer uh, leading a volunteer led sex addiction recovery groups, I I went to a a DOM about the possibility of finding a church to host a, a group. And his first question to me was, why would people in the congregation want to have a sexual pervert sitting beside them, potentially a pedophile he went specifically from sex addiction to thinking that that was associated with perversion and a pedophile and so so part of the problem within the faith community as well as even outside there's there's a stigma there's still kind of a, a red letter that goes along with sex addiction either you're a pervert and aren't seen as a regular uh human being and I'll say this all of the men that I work with are successful in their own right. They're professionals. Some of them uh, make over uh, seven figures. So it's not that. It's it's uh, something more internal. Uh, so that's one myth that it's just for people who are kind of weird. These are normal, everyday, professional, blue collar, uh, white collar. I work with people in the medical community as well as in the real estate community church members, pastors. I work with people from all walks and ethnic groups and cultural backgrounds. It pervades all of that. With the uh, affair myth, probably the number one, and you've probably heard this before, it's like the myth of the greener pasture. Right. I'm not happy where I am. Either my emotional needs aren't being met, my sexual needs aren't being met, or We're not able to work through conflict, so it's got to be better over here. And part of what people don't realize is whoever and whatever you are, you're going to take that into the next relationship as well. COVID has been kind of a mirror and a magnifying glass with relationships.
0: Yes, it has.
1: You have couples who have to spend more time together because now they're both working at home. And the idiosyncrasies, the little quirks get on each other's nerves. They don't know how to connect in ways that bring satisfaction, gratification. They end up being more in conflict. The affair looks nicer. It looks easier. It looks more inviting because I don't have those problems when I talk with this other person. I don't have those kind of conflict issues when I'm hanging out with this other person. It's a fantasy.
0: Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. You took the words right out of my mouth. And so I'm going to take a step back. Okay. And I just want to dive a little deeper into what you said. For the listeners out there, I think that it's very important for them to understand that having a sex addiction doesn't make you less than anyone. Absolutely. And the stigma that our community supports. And I'm going to say our community support this stigma because they do. Okay. We, we just being honest, they do. There are a lot of people out there who want to break that stigma and they are doing a really good job at it, but we have a long way to go. And so I want to just touch on the incident that happened with the gentleman who was identified as a sex addict. And he went to the spa and he opened fire on the workers that were there. I have heard a lot of people say, he's a monster. Oh, he's crazy. See, this is this is what you get when you have a sex addict. But that's not true. There are other things that goes along with his mental state at that moment when he decided to carry out those acts.
1: One of the things I have found with uh, men who have sex addictions, and it's it's on varying levels, a lot of it depends on what has been imprinted with family of origin. You grow up in a family of origin where there is emotional engagement, where there is a built-in resiliency, where the children feel heard, understood, and engaged in ways that make them know that they are known. When that happens, And an addiction takes place, the shame factor, the guilt factor, the self loathing that I see sometimes in guys that I work with isn't as strong. When that, when the family of origin environment is not that secure environment where it's either lacking, mom and dad's not available, or even worse, where mom or dad or both are diminutive or they're degrading or abusive, then there's hardly any resiliency right to To deal with emotional uh stresses and whatnot, and so what happened with this gentleman is is terrible uh for everyone involved. What I was thinking when I first heard about that is he must have gotten to a place where he pretty much hates himself because he has this problem, he can't seem to overcome it, and sometimes what happens is the hurt and the pain that we experience internally, we project onto others.
0: I just want to piggyback off of what you said, minus the addiction. Okay. Minus the addiction, Mm -hmm. your average person, when they are frustrated, irritable, right? Going through a rough patch, Mm -hmm. they typically lash out at someone. And it's normally typically you know someone that may be closest to them or you know a friend or a neighbor um someone in the same proximity as them they lash out so i just want to make it clear that we're not condoning what that gentleman did because he has this addiction that doesn't make him a monster no and just like you said you know there are other components that was going on within him that we will never know, you know, what those triggers were, but we need to better educate ourselves on the complexity of mental health because that at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to. Uh, one
1: of the things that I assess for uh, is, is from an emotional regulation framework and People that I work with uh, use sex to do that, to numb out, to escape, to calm, to comfort. Others in our uh, culture use alcohol. They come home from work and I have to have a glass of wine or two or a bottle to, to chill out after with all the stress. Some use exercise. Some use food. It's a wide selection of things that we use in our culture. But all of it is not really dealing with the emotion. A lot of that comes out of what emotion was like in my family growing right. up. Was it okay? Was, was I able to express it? Uh, did someone help me learn how to deal with it? And if that doesn't happen at, at our basic foundations, then we have these uh, reactions to emotion. Road rage, for example, that's another one.
0: Yeah. You touched on something very important because I remember as a little girl, one of the things that I heard a lot Mm -hmm. is men don't cry. Little boys don't cry.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so speaking to what you just said about that emotion regulation and being able to express your emotions in a healthy way and being able to talk about how you feel just imagine being a little boy or a little girl and every day someone is telling you, suck it up. Don't do that. You're weak. Crying is for babies. And then you internalize that, right? You bottle it up and you struggle with that. And then that then manifests into something else. Again, like you said, it might be sex. It might be drugs. It might be gambling. And so all of these things that we face, it goes hand in hand with your mental health. When I speak of mental health, I want the listeners to understand that it doesn't necessarily mean that you are being diagnosed with a mental health illness.
1: Usually uh, there is an attachment reason why people do what they do. Right. Good, bad, or indifferent, and if I can get in touch with that area of their lives, I I have found it very hopeful for me as a therapist, as well as helping to breathe into my clients' hope. I try to find out what's going on with each partner in order to open up their ability to see each other, uh, feel each other, and experience each other differently, in order to work on bringing that bond back.
0: Right. Speaking to your point of the bond, attachment is important. Communication is important. And being able to utilize those two in order to work with the couples who are suffering and who are facing these tribulations in working with them and getting them on the path to heal. So, how do you do that? How do you work with couples to get them to that next level?
1: My first goal with every client including the couples is to create a non-judgmental, accepting, uh welcoming atmosphere. That's part of the reason that we're called Grace Healing Journey. It's all of those there's grace that is involved, meaning we're here for you. We're, we're here to show favor, to show comfort. Uh, we see you. We hear you. We allow you to share your story. And one of the things I've heard from so many different people, you know, I've never said this to anyone before, which to me that even right now, that just really saddens my heart to think about it. That I'm the first person that a lot of the addicts or the partners have ever shared what they share because they feel safe enough to do that. And so that's the starting point, creating a safe environment and then ascertaining where they are in their level of safety. Because I find, especially if you're asking couples to be more intimate, you're asking them to be more vulnerable, to yes. take risks, to trust. and. We should not trust someone if they're going to hurt us every time we become vulnerable, correct? Correct. (laughs) So I assess for that. And then I may do a uh, intermittent individual sessions because sometimes a member of the relationship doesn't feel safe enough to actually express what they're thinking and feeling because of potential repercussion. So I give them some individual safe space to do that And then we come back together with each person having said, look, if we're going to do this, these are some things that I need. These are also some boundaries that I need to set. And sometimes that's really hard. And mostly this is with women. If women in the relationship don't feel safe and they don't feel like they can set boundaries because if they do, there's going to be blowback. It's kind of an impasse. Right. So that's usually when work goes to individual work.
0: Listeners, you have heard Bruce say there are several different ways that a couple can start their healing journey. It's not cookie color. One size do not fit all. And I appreciate him speaking to that because you don't have to be afraid. Bruce, I would like to ask you to share any advice that you have for a couple or a individual who is in a relationship that may be struggling or not sure if they have a sex addiction?
1: So for for those who may struggle with sexually problematic behavior to a full-blown compulsive sex addiction where there are lots of consequences, the first thing I would like to say is there is help Some get so weary of attempting on their own, try and fail, try and fail, try and fail. One of the biggest things I've found in this practice uh, and dealing with this population is that isolation is one of the biggest enemies. So how do you address isolation? Seek help. Reach out. One of the things I find with the partner is that they have, there's a tendency to focus on the addict and working with them. And then the partner is going through all this emotional upheaval and turmoil and feeling like, well, he needs the help or I don't have a problem, but the emotional roller coaster and the personal trauma that you've experienced, you, you deserve help. You are worth the help. You are worthy of help. And uh, I would encourage you to reach out as well. There's a number of people in our Charlotte community who do some of the things that I do that I I would encourage you to reach out and and find the help that you need.
0: Thank you, Bruce. And if listeners want to reach out to you or learn more about you and your agency, how can they do so?
1: Sure. Uh, You can visit us, uh, Grace Healing Journey. Our website is charlottetherapy.com, Instagram and Facebook, Grace Healing Journey. And if you want to give us a call, our clinical number is 980 288 2396. Be happy to speak with you and address your concerns.
0: Well, thank you so much, Bruce, for your time on Elevated Voices podcast. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you, and I hope that our listeners reach out and seek the help that they may need.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Elevated Voices Podcast, where we enjoy using our voice to share information, which promotes growth and change. Never feel like you are alone. Join our Elevated Voices Podcast community at Elevated Voices underscore on both Instagram and Twitter. Stay tuned to bi-weekly episodes wherever you get your podcast. If there's a topic that you would like me to cover, Or if you have questions, you can send me an email via my Elevated Voices podcast Facebook page. And remember, don't forget to let your voice be heard.